Welcome to the Self-Helpful Podcast, where we break down the classic and cutting-edge wisdom of self-help to discern how to actually make positive change in our lives. I'm Kevin Miller. In this episode, I'm back with actor Josh Peck to walk through his personal values and motives and habits and the key areas of life fulfillment so we can hear more about what has driven him, what does drive him today to do what he does, design the life that fulfills him. Uh, you can hear our walk through his book and insights in the previous episode and find his book, Happy People Are Annoying Everywhere. Uh, you can watch him now on Disney and Turner and Hooch and find Josh on Instagram. Go to Josh Peck. He's got uh, a couple more followers than I do. All right, Josh, you talked about just at the end of our last show, you were talking about uh, recovery group, AA, well, you know, there's different recovery groups, but AA, and how you found community and, you know, on the aspect of faith and spirituality, I, I don't know that it exists much without community. And, and of course, AA is a big, a big part of theirs is recognizing something bigger than themselves, which is where I go first with spirituality. And so in that was that kind of for you? I mean, here it is. It's just been about you, you and your mom and your story. Was that kind of a first time of coming to, uh, well, you mentioned that in the book that you come into that group. And part of it is not just about getting for yourself. It is about the group in, a, in, in itself and something again, beyond yourself. Is that fair? Yeah. I mean, when I, I walked into my first meeting of, of Alcoholics Anonymous and I, you know, had figured I was reasonably articulate. And I'd walked around with this feeling that I just could not um, articulate. I, 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 I couldn't tell you really how I was feeling. And if you threw some, you know, psychotrope, said it, you know, depression, anxiety, uh, catastrophizing, all these things. Like, yeah, yeah, I had a bit of that, but it didn't quite define who I was. And then suddenly I'm hearing these people talk and they're describing themselves and the way they think and feel and look at the world and the way that they drank and the way that it affected the people in their lives. And, and suddenly I was like, Oh, that's me. That's me. And cause for so long I'd walked around thinking, well, if you had my head on your shoulders, you'd drink too, but you don't, so you don't get it. And then I was, it was the most pivotal moment of my life. Cause it was this realization of, Oh, I'm not alone in this. There are other people like me and they're getting through life. And it was my introduction into spirituality. And, you know, because it was very pragmatic, this idea of like, you know, I, I love whatever people find in their life that gives them a bit of a reprieve, solace, grace. It's great. I was on a podcast the other day and this woman's quoting the Bhagavad Gita and talking a lot about like finding your joy and, you know, um, living intuitively. And I was like, that's awesome. If you can just do that. I said, what I really need is someone to say, esteemable acts build self-esteem. If you want to not hate yourself, go clean the coffee pots. Like huh. that's what I need. Like go clean the floor, make your bed. Like I need very, uh, you know, actionable things for someone stupid like me that can start to make me feel better. Do you make your bed? I do, do every you're, morning. You're one of those people. Okay. 
That's, that's all. There's a, there's a book out by a guy called Make Your Bed, and, and I always feel a little guilty because I don't. I always have this feeling of like it needs to air out. So I'm the, I, I throw everything off and try to let the sunlight and whatever get to it. But I feel like I'm going to be, I would never make it in the military, apparently. Well, at least you're thoughtful about it. I mean, it's, you're not just, you know, if, if that's your thing, then that's cool. But, I, it, you know, I think more people are just like too lazy to do it. But uh, if you want let that sunlight burn out some of the, the, yeah. you know, bacteria from the night before go for it. Now clean out the coffee maker. I'm totally, I'm totally hip with that one uh, as well. So with your, so today, so that's your first entrance somewhat into spirituality. How would you uh, define your values in that today? Is that community focused? And you talk about your family a lot and how do you practice that? Yeah. I just think I need to constantly be of service to others, basically. Um, I, you know, 14 years later, I'm still going to multiple meetings per week because to me, spirituality, anything good in life is a practice. Unfortunately, it's become a bit of a taboo word as of the last couple of years, but I just don't think there's any vaccine to, you know, in life for anything that's good. You know what I mean? Like, there's no, like, I really want to go to, a, a, you know, it's fascinating to me. Like people will say, you're sober. You still go to those meetings. So like, aren't you all better? And I say, no, like, because last night's meal won't keep you fed. And it would be ridiculous to think that last month's workout would keep you in shape. Like, I just don't know much in life that can't be, you know, uh, that, that can be, cultivated or, or kept without maintenance, without a practice, you know? And so for me, it's investing in my spirituality every day. I wish I did more meditating, but I don't. And the dirty little secret is I'm not sure anyone's meditating. <laughs> like I think there's a, a small percentage of the population. And if you are my hats off, but you know, it's, it's doing the work and, and reading the books and having conversations like this that helps keep me in a good place. Yeah, the show prior, the guest I had prior to you in our in our series here, uh, she comes from a long history of mental illness and working through that, and she's the first person who kind of hit back at meditation. She said, "You know what? They've done the studies. It's not for everyone. It's not the key for everyone." And so I'm sure that'll get some feedback uh, from that. But it made me want to look at it a little bit more. It's it's or you know you can also define what is your meditation. I mean, when I go on a two hour mountain bike ride. And that is a meditative place for me. Mm-hmm. And, and I even try, I even often will go at a hard enough effort that it kind of pushes everything out. And I think that's why, and yet that's not sitting in a praying mantis, you know, uh, uh, position and having absolute quiet. So maybe we look at, we achieve our meditation in different ways. I think that's right on. I agree with you. I think it can be, you know, you can enter a flow state taking action. It doesn't have to just be sitting. Yeah. Even though I'm sure there are benefits that are specific to sitting that maybe you can't get in the other way. But I feel like most of us are piecemealing our spiritual experience. Agreed. Well, it's, it's interesting you say that because I'm thinking about you going to the meetings every week, that it is a form of church in essence to give people an easy reference. And we're at a place right now, uh, as of you know 2022, where churches specifically, the religious churches are seeing the biggest decline ever. People are not going. And yet it's interesting. You talked about uh, we'll get into this in a second, but you talked about CrossFit and, and some things that I, that sounds like you participate in. It was, um, an interview with the founder of Peloton. 
And he referenced that. He said, yeah, we're seeing people who are not going to traditional churches, brick and mortar, you know, places for, for religion, but they're going somewhere. They still want that community. They want that connection. He says, so they're coming to us, to Peloton. And of course I'm thinking, yeah, and to CrossFit and all these things that we are so driven towards that. So if you're finding that in, and you know, you may have it in, you got it family, you've got work and, and people, colleagues and whatever, but if that's a place that you go, that you're known and you connect on a kindred spirit level, man, that's the best of church. Totally. And, and to anyone listening, like, I also want to say that as far as 12 step goes, like the beautiful thing is you don't have to believe in, in quotes, a higher power. It just needs to be that you're not God, right? Like, because mm-hmm. for however long I walked around thinking that I was in control of all things, people, places, and things was what got me pretty miserable. Um, but it is a place where you can be atheist or agnostic. And, and also, I'm not a representative of 12-step. Of you know, I'm just sharing my experience that is specific to me. But I think that's, I think that's really special that, you know, it's, it's whatever your own understanding is. Um, and and I, I've said this before, like, thankfully, despite not having like a great spiritual foundation through life, I didn't, I didn't really have issues with God. Hmm. Um, you know, I, I didn't, I thought my God growing up was a punishing God. Hmm. It was that if I messed up, if I lied, if I cheated, if I, you know, I was basically getting paid back for all my misdeeds. Um, but I didn't really have a tough relationship with God and now in, in my life, I act as if in the respect of I act in a way where if there is a God, how do I say this? Sorry, I want to make sure I say this correctly. No. I, you know, I try to get on my knees and humble myself to something bigger than myself, whether or not there is something bigger than me. The act of getting on my knees feels good. <laughs> make sure you clip that that. I'm sure that quote will come back to haunt me. <laughs> but like the the act of humbling myself, making myself small, not being the god of my world and being in control of everyone and everything, I know that the the byproduct of that is that I feel good. Yeah. When I act in a way where I know that I am the witness to my bad behavior, so it's not about God punishing me when I lie, cheat, and steal. I you know, I forget, forego my, my joy, my happiness when I act in a way that doesn't work for me, you know, and I'm not willing to trade that anymore for an easy win or for a little more on my plate. Cause it feels good. So anyway, it's a long winded way. Sorry, but it's just a long winded way of saying like, you know, whether or not I have concrete proof, I don't need it. It doesn't matter. I just know that when I act as if I feel better. So that's enough for me. No, I, I greatly appreciate it, Josh. Cause it's the, I've found myself in recent years having these things that I hold on dearly to, and then realizing I just don't have to make the effort to justify it. It just, like you said, it just serves me. It builds me up. And I've, I, you know, in my, vocation, which this is it, it's personal development and self-help and whatnot. You know, that's kind of the idea. You come up with what works and then you espouse it, right? Everybody, I, you know, I, I lost a hundred pounds eating nothing but carrots. Everybody should do that. 
Well, that's not the point. You know, let's look at the dynamics of it. And of course, if you can have something that you can help someone else with, like you've done, you know, in your book, but it's their journey. And, and I do appreciate that. You didn't have any specific thing. You said, this is what I did and this is what you should do, but this is what I did. It helped me. And to hear you say that right now, I, I don't, I don't know. I don't have to, again, in my vernacular, I don't have to justify it. It just has served me well. Take that and do what you will with it. Yeah, I think so. I, and Again, there there are no new ancient truths. You know, I growing up Jewish. You know, in New York or LA, you find you're pretty. Um, you're you're surrounded by, you know, a, a good population of Jewish people. But there's only 15 million of us in the world, and this is a pretty Christian country. Mm-hmm. And so, growing up, hearing the you know, certain Christian prayers or 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 you know, talks of Jesus and whatnot, it didn't turn me off. It just, it, it felt foreign, you know, because I just didn't grow up that way. But now my wife is Catholic and I see her family and how they're like good Catholics and I'm a good Jew or whatever version of whatever it is I, I am. And, and what I've really defined it as is that it's just a different entry point looking for the same thing. We're just taking a different road to the same destination, you know, and if, if, for my wife, it's easier for her to say in our father, or for me, it's easier to find it through recovery or through a, a parable from the Torah. Like, what are we looking for? We're, we're talking about the same thing. It just was introduced to us in different packaging. And that's cool. Well, I think coming from where I started off the first show, though, I, I am I am interested in a T-shirt that does refer to Jesus' disciples as his ride or die homies. It's just, I just can't get rid of that. It's just it's so funny. Uh, okay. Relationships, Josh, is the next one, which is a big part of what you just talked about. The relationships that you have found in recovery with other people, the relationship commitment that you feel to your family. Well, gosh, I mean, even early on, I mean, how much of your own journey was in relation to and I'd say the good parts of your journey of your devotion to your mom, you guys were, you guys were ride or die homies from day one. And that was a big part. So here you are today. Yeah. Where do you find your specific values and, and motives on relationships and what do you do to practice those? Because yeah, for you, and it's interesting to me as an actor, I imagine there's times when you're away for elongated periods of time and there's things that you want to do to keep your relationships humming along. Uh, so maybe you do some unique things. Tell us about that. Yeah, I mean, my mom and I are very similar. We fight like no one else in the world. Our react, our our relationship is so specific. There is no one who loves me more. Is more down to clown my ride or die than my mother, and it goes vice versa. And it has been that way. You know, I, I say in the book when you're a single mom and an only child, most families are like these closed corporations where the parents are kind of upper management and the kids are the employees. Mm -hmm. I said, my mom and I were like a startup, you know, that's (laughs) great. I love it. And, uh, you know, I was her co-captain. And so no matter what happens, like, and, and we're constantly having ups and downs because we're so similar because we like to debate. She is 100% there for me as she has been my entire life. And it goes both ways. And as I've been, for her since I was a teenager and able to help support the family. Mm-hmm. And that level of loyalty is very reminiscent of what I experienced in my life. You know, when 
50% of your parental system leaves, it means that anyone can leave. It has a deep effect on you as a kid, this idea that nothing is permanent, that anything can go away. And what I learned from my wife was family doesn't leave, that we can get in a fight, that we can disagree. We can even go to bed angry. How about that? We can go to bed angry because when you're ready to figure this out, when we're ready to address this, I'll be here because family doesn't leave. And that was this new idea to me that I never quite understood. And it's reminiscent of what I have with my mom. It's reminiscent of what I have with my wife and now my son. So I try, you know, it's quid pro quo. What I feel from them, I try to give back. And that's why I, you know, I rush home the second that I can from, you know, sometimes to my detriment, I'm exhausted, but you know, whatever, I'm not some great hero. You know, I was working in Albuquerque for the last two months and, you know, Saturday morning, there was a 6 a.m. flight back to L.A. And I was taking that flight and knowing I was going to be exhausted. And I was taking the last flight out Sunday night because it's like there's no good excuse. You know, there there would be no good excuse to not come home. Like it would be easier. It'd be a little more comfortable. I'd get a little more sleep, but I'm sacrificing time with them. So just reinforcing those. Those levels of, of loyalty and devotion to me is what keeps us on a, on an even keel. Is that Albuquerque? Is that filming Turner and Hooch or something else? No, we were filming this movie Oppenheimer. Oh, okay. Yeah, for the, this, I have a small part in the new Christopher Nolan movie. Ah, beautiful. Okay. Yeah. Um, on the the idea of relationships too. I'm curious because being who you are, you're a celebrity with, you know, 13 million, you know, friends on, on Instagram and and whatnot, but lots of relationships in your life. A lot of people want your attention. Whatnot. Are you the kind of guy who does, uh, how do I put this? I'm sure you enjoy all of them and, you know, to a, to a degree, but that you primarily, you do have a lot of friends, a lot of relationships or kind of loyal to a close knit group of friends. I have a lot of great acquaintances. I'm loyal to a close knit group of friends. I'm lucky that my wife is so close to her family. She has an awesome family that I'm close with. Um, you know, I have great sister and brother-in-laws and in-laws. And um, so, you know, that takes up a fair amount of time. I have my best friend since I was 14 years old, my buddy Len, who I see, you know, a handful of times a week. He's, you know, a sober guy as well. So it, it it's even more sort of um, harmonious, our relationship, and uh, in that way that we have sort of a similar thing. And yeah, I just, I, I don't, I have a big brother from the Big Brothers Foundation that my mom got me when I was eight years old, knowing oh, wow. that she could only give me so much. And we have a very, very rare story in Big Brothers um, where we've now been together 28 years. He was the best man at my wedding. I can get choked up talking about him now. He's just the best guy I know. And so I feel so lucky. And I feel like that God or whatever you want to call it has put in my life, these male role models between my, you know, father-in-law who I really look up to and my big brother to sort of fulfill that part that I didn't get from my own dad. Yeah. Well, and you talk about that in the book, you're realizing or you became aware that in, 
in men, you were constantly looking for that surrogate father. And that's, man, talk about, uh, you know, back on the spiritual aspect. I mean, the God nature, we tend to, men especially tend to, I think everybody, but tend to extrapolate a little bit of their father experience to a God figure. You had no father experience and you were looking for a surrogate father. That's got to, that's got to jack some things up. Oh my gosh. It's so funny because a lot of people have been asking why the title for my book, Happy People Are Annoying, why that title? And so I had sort of a stock answer, which was (laughs) I spent a lot of my life assuming that people got a manual for living at birth that I just didn't receive. And so things hurt me more. They affected me differently. I didn't know how to navigate sort of the natural social contract that everyone else seemed to inherently just know how to do. And but that statement of I didn't receive the same manual for life that everyone else did. And my friend, the great comedian, Giannis Papas, thought about it and went, oh, you mean a dad? Uh-huh. <laughs> it's like, you didn't have a dad. Uh-huh. A dad would have helped with that. And I was like, oh, yeah, probably. I mean, it goes without saying that there are plenty of people with two parents and both parents suck or, yeah. you know, one parent, you know, like, so I was lucky to have one great parent. But I, I will say it, 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 it's an interesting thought. Yeah. Hey, I appreciate you having a a childhood friend because you mentioned a a minute ago that there's no new ancient wisdom. Having an old friend, uh, there's a, I don't know if you know the music artist, Ben Rector, and he has a song, you can't make old friends. Oh man, it just kind of hits me because I've lost some of my old childhood friends that, you know, you knew their back parents back porch. I don't know my new friends, you know, even my best friend today, I don't know his parents back porch. It wasn't that old. So the fact that you have that, that's a, what an awesome privilege of a pillar. I'm so lucky. And and to your point, like I had friends, I met Lane when I first moved to New, from New York to Los Angeles when I was 14. And, you know, I have friends who I knew before that from New York, guys I went to middle school and high school with and who even moved out to California inevitably that unfortunately we've lost touch. And, but this relationship specifically, and I think it's because our families grew at the same time. As I said, we both happen to be sober guys. So there's a real language of the heart between us, but I'm very lucky, you know, yeah. like we, I, I'm getting into that uh, annoying habit, which I, I, my mom talks to her best friend, Jill, like every day, like she has like a rotating cast of characters that she'll talk to every day. And I'm finding myself like every day, just wanting to like check in the line and be like, what's Len doing? Like, That's awesome. And I'm like, oh no, I'm becoming my mom. It's <laughs> <laughs> I, I, awesome. Well, man, health and wellness and of course, uh, I appreciate your story of your big weight loss, big part of your, your story. And in that saying, man, I didn't do any specific, you know, big program diet. You just kind of ate a little less, tried to eat a little better, exercise more every day. And that's kind of what did it for 18 months. Is that still fair uh, portrayal of that? I, I would say so. Yeah. And I've, I've, you know, right now, now I basically just eyeball everything calorically wise and I, I move my body five or six times a week, be it in a workout, boxing, hiking, just doing something. So where I feel like I can end the day at somewhat of a character deficit or at, at the very least sort of being on, uh, you know, basically canceling out. So the amount of calories I took in, I also burned 2000 calories by just being alive, walking around, and then maybe 500 calories from exercising. Plus I I need for depression and 
just for the natural sort of like, ugh of living, those natural endorphins and good feeling chemicals, like I'm addicted to that now. I, I need that. Um, so I try to, I try to work out every day. Is you, so you mentioned depression and that's the next one is, you know, mind and mental health. Is that something that you are aware of and as a, an issue that you deal with? I think so. And I don't, you know, I, I, I I'm cautious to say it only cause I don't want to take away from people who I know who've dealt with like really crippling depression sure. or like true clinical depression, like, Cause I don't know what, you know, like, I, I don't mean to be corny, but like, maybe it's just the blues or maybe it's, uh, you know, situational. I don't know how to, I, cause it certainly doesn't plague me every day, but even right now, like I'm feeling, and it could just very well be that I, you know, I, I was working on that thing for two months. I had the book come out. I was just really busy and I didn't have a chance to sort of consider my feelings. And right now is a little bit of a slow time and, and that wave of emotion comes back and and maybe that's just as i said not being that busy right now i don't know but um yeah it's something that i certainly feel well my buddy randy the doc would say we're all on the spectrum you know if depression mm -hmm. is here sadness whatever where does it go into clinical which it does for some people but yeah when is it natural to feel i appreciate you saying that that you did xyz and and maybe it makes sense to feel a little blue or to feel a little bit of, of a letdown after a big effort or, or whatnot and when is it something that has to clinically be treated which on that i wanted to pull this out josh in this segment for the book because it was just such a big statement. Um, you said, and this went through your storytelling of when you got into drugs and when you got into recreational, uh, drugs and you said drugs lifted the pain of existence so well that I mistook being high for being alive. That's worth rewinding folks and listening to, because I, my thought is that's, that's what all medications are, whether that medication is turning on the TV or scrolling Instagram to see what Josh Peck is doing, or it's, uh, you know, food. I mean, that was your first addiction, I, I, apparently, and that, that we're doing that to get the feeling that we want, that we're not getting from our pure just being alive. And well, which now you are, you're sober, you're not, you know, on that, but you, your medication is your, and, and to that degree, I think we, we all have medications, but there's going to be less harmful ones. And so a, a healthy one for you today is your family. Is that fair? Certainly. Yeah. I, I think that, uh, I I've replaced it. Look, the best thing, you know, there's no true altruism, right? Because you know that doing something for someone else will make you feel better. But it's as close to me as I found as like the, the great free high in life. The best things is when you can do something good and not get caught. Mm -hmm. um, but if you, but regardless, like, you know, esteemable acts build self-esteem. That's what I learned, you know, 14 years ago from, you know, some sober buddies. And it, it, it was such a revelation because I, I literally thought we all have like a stock amount we're born with. And I just got an empty tank. Yeah. But the reality was, you know, or this idea of like, if you spend all day thinking about how great you are or how crappy you are, you're self-centered. Like, it doesn't matter. It doesn't have to be reserved for the quarterbacks. It doesn't have to be reserved for the egoic, you know, ultra attractive person who thinks like, you know, they're the coolest in the crowd. Like it can easily be for someone who spends their life thinking all the reasons why they stink and why they're not enough. 
I heard it said the other day, no one ever shamed themselves into the person they wanted to be. Mm-hmm. Like, it's it's just, you know, some of these realities. So, yeah, I, I have to have maintenance of, of things that work for me that don't have diminishing returns. You know, they say for an alcoholic, the, the best treatment for alcoholism um, is, you know, sobriety. And the second best is alcohol Hmm. because, you know, alcohol sure worked, you know, drugs and alcohol, they did work. They turned my mind off. They made me feel the things that I thought I wanted to be, you know, charming and handsome and, you know, confident. The problem is drugs have diminishing returns and it starts out fun and then it's just fun with problems and then it's just problems. And so, you know, what are you trading for that 30 minutes of reprieve? You know, are you trading your freedom? Are you trading the heartbreak of the people you love most? Are you hurting people to get what you need? Probably it's usually where it ends. So it wasn't an option anymore. Well, it's interesting, as you talked about, probably in our first talk together, that it looks like you looked at weight. So here you were and you were, you know, an overweight kid. Well, gosh, yeah, you had multiple things. So you're overweight. That was part of your identity and almost a crutch. Maybe it helped make you funny. Then you're a kid and you wanted to grow out of being a kid actor. You didn't want to be, continue to be fat. You didn't want to be a, you know, you wanted to grow out of being a kid actor. Now you don't want drugs. It's like you're looking for freedom from any crutches. I think so. Yeah, I, I certainly it would be. Yeah. And I, I think the final frontier is my career. <laughs> okay, okay. Fair. Fair. Yeah. I think, I think you, you make a really smart, astute point there that it, yeah, I'm constantly trying to figure out what, what stands in the way of me and happiness. Like what can I be okay without? Okay. That's a great, it's a work career business. That's the next, the next segment here. And that is interesting. I, I talk about this a lot. I got a buddy who's a real, he's a re- renowned uh, sculptor. He does life-size sculptures all around the country and, and whatnot. And he was asked at an event that I hosted one time uh, on, on business and, and whatnot, what would he do if he could not sculpt? And none of us want that question. You know, what, what do I do if I'm not podcasting or what, are, what would you do? That's a hard one. If you're not an actor. If that's taken away, I mean, you know, to some degree, it's kind of cool. Well, you can write. That's another way to get a message across. Mm-hmm. You can podcast uh, to do that. What are those different? We talked about grooves. You know, the groove is that Josh is a guy who wants to do what he wants. Well, you said that you want to be of service to others. So how can you do that? Can you do that through acting? You're, you're already doing that. But right now your main gig is acting. You are an actor. That's how you're presented. That is part of your identity. And it's fair that you also love it. I mean, you talked about that. You, you enjoy doing that. So is that, I assume that is what you're, you're 35. I mean, you can do this rest of your life. Is that the intent? I guess so. I mean, for, for today, although I've certainly driven home over the last month in moments where I felt like a scene didn't go as well as I'd hope, I was just like, I can't drive home like this anymore. I've been driving home like this for 20 years. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the, that old familiar feeling of like, damn it. Like, you know, and, but that's, um, you know, being an actor is like being a gambling addict. You're going to lose more than you win. You know, Aaron Sorkin has this great quote of, uh, 
a guy who strikes out two out of three times will still go to the Hall of Fame. Yeah. So maybe it's just getting, you know, maybe it's more about just getting more and more comfortable with this idea of like, it's going to be a natural part of your life. This second guessing, this wishing you did a better job, wishing you had one more take, wishing you could control the edit, wishing you could do X, Y, and Z. But at the end of the day, your job is to be an actor and to be of service to the language and the production. And if you've done that to the best of your ability, then the rest is out of your control, which is maddening. And, but I would say the ego part of it too. And my acting teacher tells me this and she's someone I really look up to. She said, you got to get over this idea of killing it. She's like, it's not about killing it. Like, it's just got to be like, you just, you just do it. Like the only way you fail is if you're not prepared. Like, but if you've done the work and you know you've done the work, well, then you put it out there. And like, because it's weird. It's not exacting. It's not classical music. It's not golf. You know, it's a, it's a and it doesn't have points. It's subjective, you know, yeah. but it's a ballistic sport. You never know which way the, the ball's going to bounce. So just react. And when you're done, you did your work. Go home to your family. You saying that, that what you do, you lose more than you win. So I had maybe a year ago, uh, Matthew Del Negro on the show. He's on uh, city on a hill and his book is 10,000 no's that he's in mm. the business of being told no, primarily, you know, for every, right. I don't know if he gives a stat for every, for every yes, there's X amount of no's. And again, I like, that's why I had him on the show. I like that perspective because we tend to be I think the average person, they don't want any no. They don't want a failure. They don't want to, I mean, we're, we're terrified and we won't even go forward. And you're in an ex, exaggerated, uh, you know, industry of that, of you're expecting to, you know, audition for this, try this, inquire about this, and you're going to get a yes. Well, you just talked about that. You, you went five years kind of not doing a whole lot. And then finally, boom, you get a series. That's hard for most, I mean, that's not the average work life of the, a normal person. No, but it, and in that time I built my social media business and was probably financially doing better than I ever had. And so it was like, uh -huh. but my ego was screaming out, like being like, but are you this guy? Are you the YouTuber? Are you the podcaster? Like, wasn't, didn't we devote ourselves to this thing when we were 14 and like, and, and uh, do, do you have to forego that? And you know, and I was also my, my ego was bruised because it felt like people thought not that it is, but that doing social media was this consolation prize. And people were like, oh, well, you know, he couldn't make it in this place. So he, and like my ego couldn't stand it. So there was a lot of the, you know, that time was not wasted. It was just discovering this new, you know, income stream, this new profession that I could do, and also just breaking myself down as a young man at that time in my late twenties and realizing like how much work was left to do. Oh, I do want to pull out. I almost did a minute ago that here you are and you've been acting since forever. Uh, I mean, and, and yet you are, you have an acting coach today, right? Mm -hmm. Did I get that? Okay. So I, I, I want, I want us all to hear that me talking about, I think what is it the first show or in here, I talked about my own past pro cycling of how uncoachable I was. I had so much talent and ability and I squandered it by not being coachable, which is why I revere guys like you who here you are having been already such an accomplished actor. You're doing it right now. You're getting paid today. 
and you have an acting coach, it's same thing here. So you've got, you know, 13.3, I don't know your other social media numbers. I think they're big too, but 13.3 just on Instagram. Of course, the average person would look at that and go, well, because you're a celebrity, you, you got that. And you're saying, no, you work to grow that as a business. I, I'm going to bet then that you probably had some coaching paid for consulting, whatever, to make that happen. Yes. Um, in the social media respect. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, I built it completely on my own, but I happened to be in a time and place where it was the perfect alchemy of these things were new when I started on that. And I had a little bit of notoriety because I was a public person. So, you know, again, maybe I had five or 10,000 followers on Twitter, but it was enough to spark the algorithm. Plus, I was uniquely suited to do it because I'd spent my entire life acting. So when I was making videos for Vine or TikTok or, or whatever, I, I knew I wasn't coming in fresh. I, I knew kind of how to set up a joke in a way that, that if worked, could there could be a virality to it. So it was basically, you know, learning by doing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, fair to say you were a student of it. It wasn't just, oh, he's yeah. a celebrity. Everybody's following him and say, no, I actually worked on this. A hundred percent. No, if I didn't lean into social media the way that I did, I'd probably have, you know, a fifth of my following. Money, finances, wealth. That's the next one here. And you talked, it's part of your story. I mean, you grew up in, is it fair to say poverty? I know there's different levels. There's some people who couldn't eat. So it wasn't that, but from apartment to apartment and, you know, evictions and not being able to pay rent and whatnot and wondering where the next, you know, meal or roof over your head is going to be with your mom. And then you did get, you know, you, you had some fame. Well, but even it's interesting. I had no idea. Uh, I guess it's not surprising, but it's just, man, it's still compelling that here you are with Josh and Drake and for the time period that that thing ran. So you're a famous dude, kid on Nickelodeon, but when you take the money made, and the money that went out to agents and went to, you know, X, Y, Z, you're saying your net was about a hundred K a year. Like, it, yeah. Yeah. That, that was kids television at the time. And, and the only reason I shared that because no one wants to hear about money. I mean, everyone wants to hear about money, but it's not cool to talk about it was just to sort of correct what was the misnomer that this idea because I believe that if people saw you after a show like that and you maybe did a not so great movie or a commercial or a social media gig, their assumption was, well, you should be set for life. Mm -hmm. So if you're doing this, this means you blew the money or you're a failure in some way. And so the reality was, no, I'm just doing it to get by and like to try to get my next thing. I'm just making a living like everyone else. So that was sort of the reason why I remember my buddy, Ryan Holiday, who helped advise on the book, I wasn't going to mention that. And he was like very, very emphatic that it was, he's like, you have to mention it because I, like everyone else thought you were rich and, uh, and that's okay. It is what it is. I'm not upset that, you know, we weren't more financially sort of compensated. I just, what I found annoying was the misconception about it. Yeah. But yet it was still significant from where you guys came to even making, I mean, some money, consistent money, a lifestyle sure. change. And you talked about the guy, the, I'm going to call it an achievement in essence of being able to support you guys. Uh, your mom's mm -hmm. busting her butt for you and you got the, I don't know, turn the tables a bit and support that's got to have felt good. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And it's something that I'm still, you know, it, it just goes without saying it's part of, 
you know, I feel like between my wife and my mom, like I get a lot of support and emotional support and, you know, I'm not great at certain things, uh, certain, you know, um, bookkeeping and just like certain things that I'm just not, it's not my strength, but my strength is making a living. And so I feel like that's my part in this sort of scenario. And by helping to sort of uh, flow the river, then my wife and my mom and, and my son, they can all do what they do. Yeah. It's so funny. And most of the people who I have on the show kind of cite the same thing. And I, I'm the same way too. We kind of figured out how to make money. It's pretty much the end of our skill when it comes to money, uh, right. <laughs> keeping it, doing something with it. That's what you got to pay other people for. Cause it's not coming out of us. Uh, and I did want to pull out folks, Ryan holiday. I've had so many people say, I need to have him on the show. And, and, and I do, I don't know. I have no reason for not having, uh, him on. I, the first book I got, my dad actually sent me his daily stoic. So if you don't know Ryan holiday, put, well, just type his name in, you'll find him, but uh, he's, he's definitely known for his stoic writings and whatnot. But, uh, you remind me again, I got to get him on the show. I appreciate so much of what he's done. I just never touched base and didn't know that you guys were connected. What a great relationship. Yeah, no, I'm lucky. I've known him for over 10 years. And when I got this book deal, I knew I didn't want a ghostwriter, but I knew I needed, I only knew showbiz terms. So I called him and I was like, I need a producer. Like I need someone that I can send pages to that I can bother and they can tell me what's working and what isn't. And he said, I can do that for you. That's awesome. You mentioned a book advance before. I think mine is going to be all spent on editing to help me actually write a good book. Uh, exactly. But, uh, so, trust me, same here. So, so be it. Uh, all right. Last one, man, is achievements and interest. And in this, it's kind of a, yeah, behind the scene. What, what, uh, even the aspects of like fun and let me start there, fun and play. So what does Josh Peck do just in your personal life? What, what, uh, inspires you? What, uh, what's fun and play for you? Wow. I like, uh, what do I like? I, I, I like, um, playing music. I play the piano. I like hiking. I like, uh, going to the trampoline park with my kid. Uh, yeah, yeah I, I'm not like a super hobby guy, but, uh, those things sort of jump out as things I enjoy doing. You, you mentioned hiking a couple of times. Are you in LA? I am. I, I don't know nothing about LA. Can you, I don't think of it as a place to hike. I see lots of cities and smog. Apparently there's places to hike. Cause you're in Colorado, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's great hiking. I, uh, no, it's, uh, literally where I'm, my buddy's house where I am, I'm, you know, nine minutes from something called Bryman Canyon uh-huh. and I'll, you know, go do that. And it's a great 45 minute hike. So achievements on that. I mean, obviously you have achieved a lot, you know, you had a star, you know, uh, kids show and, and whatnot. Now, when you look at it, what are, I'm curious. Yeah. As a, as a professional actor, you got big social media following. What are some, what are some of the achievements that you kind of the bucket list things that I would like to do that, whether it's a commitment, I'm doing that, or it's that that would be cool in your profession. I really want to write something and it's, I've been writing for the last couple of years. I've had a few things in development, but I've never been the dude. I've never been in charge of my own destiny. I've never had, you know, I've always been an actor for hire for better or for worse. And so I'd really love to write something and probably act in it. And also kind of, you know, just to see and and more will be revealed. I'm I'm not above this idea that I might stink at it, but I, I would love to really, give that a try and not have, you know, execute what I think would be the best vision 
and see if if other people agree. Okay. Well, uh, you got my vote. Uh, as soon as it comes <laughs> up, I'll be, <laughs> I'll attend the premiere. And man, thank you. Bye. Thanks for being here for the time you've given and for the insight, man. I appreciate your heart so much and your willingness to be of service to others. You have been of service to me and I'm eager to introduce you to my uh, audience in this format. I'm sure they've all seen you elsewhere, but to hear your insight, uh, it's just been a gift. Josh, thank you. Oh, I can't wait. Thank you so much, man. This was great. Well, friends, there is Josh Peck again. Do yourself a favor, get his book, Happy People Are Annoying, wherever you get books. Find him on Instagram at Josh Peck. And again, right now, he's on Disney Plus in the show Turner and Hooch. Thank you uh, so much for choosing to tune in to the Self-Helpful Podcast. If you got value from the show, please subscribe, leave us a rating and review so other people can know what they can get from the show. And I really hope sincerely that I've helped you help yourself 